Luke 18, 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The word of the Lord. Indeed. Welcome to the Panadora. My name is Mark. If you're new to the church, uh, we are continuing in our meandering journey through the parables of Jesus. We've been listening to these parables together over the summer, and I hope, uh, summer travel schedules being what they are, that you've been here enough to begin to connect what I think is the central meta-theme of the parables of Jesus, namely, God is strange. Okay, there are lots of themes to pay attention to as we go through the parables. We've highlighted some of those. Inclusion before exclusion, for example. Lostness leading to life and joy. The hiddenness of the kingdom of God. But what all of these subservient themes have in common is that they point to the strangeness of the God behind them. They point to this upside-down and inside-out reality that oftentimes we cannot see, or really that we cannot see with the natural eye, only with eyes of faith, and they give us a clue to the fact that our Father, our Heavenly Father, is nothing like us. He is very, very strange. Take just, for example, the parable we covered last week of the great banquet. Who among us invites into their home the most incorrigible of society for the sake of friendship? Especially who among us that is of high position, even a king, Can you imagine the president of this country throwing open the doors of the White House to all of the drunks in the Washington, D.C. area, and not as some political publicity stunt, but strictly for the sake of friendship, so that this group would become his crew, his friends? No, of course, our world does not work that way. In our world, we always exclude before we include In our world, we always require that someone prove trustworthy before we allow them too close to us. In as much as they prove trustworthy, we begin to include them in our life. That is what dating is all about, of course. We don't marry people on the first day we meet them. We allow trust to build over time. Even in those cultures where dating is not the norm, where there's prearranged marriages, the families mutually vet one another carefully before they move toward that radical inclusion. This is why landlords do background checks 
and credit checks before they rent out their buildings. This is why employers have job interviews with their candidates. This is the way that our world works. Not so God. God is radically inclusive before he excludes anyone. He puts himself in harm's way. He, for example, includes Judas in and among the twelve, even though it winds up costing him dearly. God is strange. He's a different sort of cat. And the parables of Jesus bear that out. In fact, really all of the teaching of Jesus bears that out. Every time Jesus begins to teach about the nature of his Father, it becomes more and more clear that he is not like us, that he is different than us, that he's strange by all of the measures of normalcy that we typically use in our world. Jesus, over the course of his teaching ministry, was pointing to this repeatedly. At one point, as he was making his way toward Jerusalem, toward what would be the final week of his natural life and his unjust crucifixion, he passed between uh, Samaria and Galilee. And as he was passing through that region, some of the teachers of the law began to question Jesus, began to challenge him on when it was that the kingdom of God would appear. They were picking up on the fact that Jesus had this sort of messianic aura about him, and they were challenging him to tell them, to predict for them, when this promised kingdom that they had read so much about from their prophets would finally break in to our broken world and set everything right, reestablish the people of Israel to their rightful place of prominence. And Jesus, as was his custom as he began to interact with these teachers of the law, answered them in a rather obtuse way. He told them that, in fact, the kingdom of God was already in their midst. The problem was simply that this was the sort of kingdom that could not be observed. He said that in Luke chapter 17, that the kingdom will come in a way that cannot be observed. It will arrive here in a way that cannot be seen, that cannot be noticed. In fact, it will come so stealthily that upon its full arrival, when the tide of the kingdom has lapped up onto the shore completely of this dying and broken world, it will be a shock to this dying and broken world. We will never see it coming. We won't have seen it coming. It'll simply be here and breaking out among us. Many people will be stunned, Jesus said, on that day. And on that day, he alluded to what will be a great unveiling, that suddenly the scales will fall from our eyes and we'll begin to see all these aspects of the kingdom, all these upside-down, inside-out aspects of the kingdom that were hidden from view, covered over by our fallen eyesight, by our broken ears. And when this happens, when this great unveiling commences, we'll be shocked to see who we are and who 
others are, the judgments that we've made about what is up and what is down and what is in and what is out and what is life and what is death and light and darkness, all of these judgments will prove false. And we will see things for what they really are, for what they have always been. Jesus said this unveiling will happen so suddenly it will be as though two people are lying together in bed, perhaps husband and wife, perhaps simply lovers, and one of them will be arrested, stolen out of that place of rest and comfort and life, taken away, taken captive. And the other person will be left there to go on living, to go on resting, to go on enjoying creation enjoying the goodness of God. We'll be surprised to discover, Jesus was saying, who among us will be arrested, who among us will be taken captive, who among us will be taken away. The people who are seemingly on top of the world, people who have found life in this life, people who have put their confidence and stock in what is happening here, will be shown to have nothing on that day. And by contrast, those who have given up, those who have lost confidence in themselves, those who have lost hope in and of themselves or in and of this world and this life, they will be shown to have all things. They will be granted even keys to the kingdom of God. Slightly disconcerting to hear for those of us who rely so heavily on the judgments that we make in the here and now, who trust so readily our natural sight, what it is that we hear and perceive. Jesus says all of that will be exposed. The disciples who were standing there questioned him regarding these arrests, these people being taken away from life being exposed as empty and having nothing. They say, where will this happen? Where will these arrests take place? And Jesus answers cryptically again that where there are corpses, there the vultures will feed. In other words, where there are people who are already dead, where there are people who have sought after dead things, who have tried to find life and breath and hope and peace in this dying world, they will be exposed as nothing. They will become as corpses to feed the vultures. These are harrowing words. Jesus spoke in this way often. He was unnerving. Many people who gathered around to hear his teaching left disconcerted and confused, even terrified. They began to wonder if the whole way they were seeing the world was mistaken. They didn't know where they could stand, where there was solid ground. And so... In the wake of this comment about corpses feeding vultures, the terror level in the group around Jesus is especially high, and it's on this occasion, at this moment, that we receive the parable that we are considering today. 
Jesus sets out to tell a parable here to reassure these people who are listening to him that for all the strangeness of God, for how different he is than us, for how unpredictable and seemingly dangerous he might seem, he nevertheless remains one who is good, and he remains one with whom you will very much want relationship. He means to tell a parable here that will reassure the people that the strangeness of God is not, in fact, reason to worry, but, in fact, can provide great comfort. And so Luke, the gospel writer who brings us this parable, starts chapter 18 by setting up the parable for us, giving us an introductory word regarding this comfort. Luke 18, verse 1 says, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay, Luke is giving us an interpretive clue for this ensuing parable, that the story that Jesus is about to tell should convince us that relationship with God is good. The story Jesus is about to tell should show us that even for all of his upside-downness and strangeness, God is someone that you very much will enjoy relationship with. And so then, with that throat clearing out of the way, Luke launches into the words of Jesus telling this parable to those gathered around him. Jesus said, In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Okay, what's happening here? It's a short parable. I think we can wrap our minds around it. We have here first a judge, a judge who is not beholden to the standards of upright judging that all of us would understand. When you and I think about a righteous judge or an upright judge, the sort of judge that we would want to go before, we have in our minds a judge that will carefully consider the facts and evidence of the case and make a judgment on the merits. Here we have a judge who renders verdicts exclusively on the basis of his own whims, on the basis of his own desires, And a judge who is wholly unaffected by public perception is unconcerned with the consequences of his verdicts in the minds of those who would hear them. He doesn't care that his reputation might be dragged through the mud. He doesn't care that the whole world might conclude that he is not righteous, that he is not upright. And on the other side, we have a widow who continues to come before this judge with the expectation that this judge will do right, 
This widow keeps coming before this judge, making her case, offering evidence and argument for why this judge might rule in her favor, why he might give her the verdict that she wants. She's oblivious to the fact that this judge cares nothing for the arguments that she is bringing and will not be deciding this case on that basis. In fact, we see quite clearly that this judge does not decide the case on that basis. Instead, he renders a verdict in favor of this widow exclusively so that she will stop making her arguments, not because he has been convinced by them. He wants her to give it up and go home and leave him alone. Now, who is this parable primarily about? Well, if you believe some of the modern English translations of the Bible, this parable primarily is about the widow and her persistence. In the English Standard Version, which is the version we often use here, in the New International Version, which is the version we have used to read the Scriptures together, in many of the other modern translations, there is a heading placed over this particular parable at the beginning of Luke 18. It's a heading that is, of course, not in the original text of Scripture. It's meant simply to set up the parable, but the heading is the parable of the persistent widow. Now, that heading is grossly misleading. Because if we go into the parable believing that this is a parable primarily about the persistence of this widow, we might then conclude that Jesus is here teaching about an ethic of persisting in prayer an ethic of persisting in asking God to agree with you and persisting so much and so hard that at the end of the day, he may relent and finally agree with you. We might conclude that that is what this parable is about. But we would be sorely mistaken. That is not in fact, what this parable is about. And the reason I know that and can say it with such certainty is because in the very next verse, Jesus explicitly tells us what this parable is about. Now, it doesn't happen very often with the parables that Jesus turns immediately following the parable and unpacks for us What is its thrust of meaning? When he does, we ought to pay very close attention, more attention to the words of Jesus unpacking the parable than the translators who put the unhelpful headings in place. Now, I should say there are several modern English translations of this parable that have as the heading over it the title, The Parable of the Unjust Judge. They got it right. They listened to Jesus. 
Hear the words of Jesus as he unpacks this parable for us. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Or it's pay attention, listen carefully to what this unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This parable is not primarily about the persistent widow. This parable is primarily about the unjust judge, and in particular, what he says, the verdict that he renders. So who is this unjust judge? Well, he makes this unjust judgment. He makes unjust judgments in general according to every scale of virtue that we would measure him by. In other words, he is unjust in our sight. He's unjust from our perspective. We would count a judge just and true if they render verdicts on the basis of evidence and the merits of the case. This judge renders verdicts according only to his desires, not the evidence or the arguments. And what kind of a judge is that? Well, for starters, he's a judge that will leave those in his courtroom feeling very much out of control. Nothing that I say or bring before this judge will have any basis, will provide any basis in his verdict. Makes the people in his courtroom feel very small. What's more, this is a judge who doesn't care about public opinion or whether people believe him to be upright or whether the verdict that he renders winds up getting him disbarred, thrown out of high position, thrown in with common criminals even, even if it gets him crucified. He doesn't seem to care. He's unaffected by the societal standards of what is right or good. He's rogue. He's a wild card. He's dangerous. He's unpredictable. And who is this judge? Jesus tells us explicitly to hear what he is saying, to listen to what he says, because these unrighteous judgments, this particular unrighteous judgment that this judge renders is just the sort of unrighteous judgment that God renders to. This parable is not about persistent people finally getting God to agree with them. It's about a very strange God who rules in favor of people so that they'll stop making arguments before him. So that he will put an end to their self-justifying arguments. Jesus is saying, we've all been arguing for justice all along. God won't be engaging those arguments. He won't be considering them. 
You have no need to think up some new clever point or come at this with some new angle. You have no need to concoct stories about your own innocence. There will be no convincing this judge to be just. He has already made up his mind to rule unjustly. And his unjust, unrighteous, maddening judgment is to lavish his people in victory. There is no more need to try and convince him. You cannot earn the favor of this God on the merits of your case. He will simply roll his eyes and strike all that evidence from the courtroom and render the decision that he wants because he's the sort of God who favors lost, broken, self-justifying people, period. That's who he is. You see what Jesus is saying? The strangeness of God is not a reason to worry. The unpredictability of his judgments is not a reason to worry. The unpredictability of his judgments turns out gloriously in our favor. Now, all we have to do is that simple task of giving up on being right. (laughs) All we have to do is let go of any hope that our actions in any respect will be vindicated. All we have to do is abandon the thought that our innocence will be proved. He's going to rule in our favor. Isn't that all that matters? Can't we just be wrong eternally? If only he rules in our favor, or are we so committed to proving our innocence that we would forfeit going free? That we would wander off to some other courtroom, find some other judge, invent some other God, if only he would take our arguments seriously. If only he would weigh the scales of our lives. If only he would look at our self-justifying merits. If only he would look at our deeds and our misdeeds, give us some indication of how we're doing. Let me lie in the bed that I have made for good or ill, but let me be the arbiter of my own destiny. Are we so committed to that that we would forfeit this free favor of God? I think actually for most of us, the reason why we give up on this God, the reason why we lose heart and stop going to him, stop having a relationship with him, is because we just cannot believe that he is real. 
We cannot believe that God is this strange. We can't believe he'd be this dangerous. That he would not pass muster in the scales of our uprightness. That when we measure him according to our standards of godliness, he would fail. He would pay no heed to what we think matters so much. Surely, he's going to hold me to account at some point for my deeds and my misdeeds. Surely, he's going to hold the world to account. He won't just rule in our favor without any evidence that we have even put in an effort to reform ourselves. Surely, he is not that Strange, and so we talk ourselves out of the grace of God. We are absolutely committed in the inner core of our being to rejecting the grace of God. And the whispers in our hearts and minds talk us out of it. We talk ourselves into unbelief. I spent a couple of days... Uh, this past week with a number of other pastors on a retreat here in Chicago. They came from around the country. I got to stay here in my hometown. But it was a wonderful time of sharing together and praying for each other and relaxing and resting. But one of the things that we did together was to share our stories. We spent about eight hours, each one of us taking a turn sharing our story in detail. And it was refreshing to hear story after story of the strangeness of God. To be reminded again in real flesh and blood of just how strange he is. One of the pastors told a story of being a young man, an unbeliever, no connection to faith or the church. He was married. His wife went through a miscarriage and was grieving this to the point of seeking comfort and she wandered into a church down the street from them and found faith and discovered life in Christ and comfort in the spirit and after attending this church for some time she started begging the pastor there to come to her house and talk to her unbelieving husband. She was trying to sick the pastor on her husband which some of you have asked me to do over the years. And like this pastor, I've often said, no thanks. (laughs) Why don't you invite him to church? (laughs) When he comes to church, then I'll waste my time. (laughs) But after this pastor was bugged enough, I guess, to get this woman to stop making the arguments, he agreed to go and went to their home and knocked on the door on a Saturday morning. And this man answered by the name of Jim. He answered, Jim answered the door, and the pastor introduced himself. I'm Pastor so-and-so from this, down the street. And Jim yelled to his wife down the hall, hey, your blankety-blank pastor is here to see you. And the pastor said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm actually here to see you. Uh, to which Jim was slightly taken aback by and said, no, I don't want to meet with you. And the pastor said, well, I figured that but I heard that you play tennis, so I'm actually wondering if you come play tennis with me. And 
Jim happened to really enjoy tennis. It was Saturday morning. He agreed to go. They went and played tennis. And this pastor, as it turned out, was really terrible at tennis. And so Jim annihilated him and enjoyed that. And so the pastor said, well, why don't we play again next weekend? And the next weekend rolled around, and the pastor showed back up at the house, and they went out and played tennis, and Jim crushed this pastor again. And now he was starting to really enjoy this uh, relationship. <laughs> so the pastor said, why don't we play again? And so on the third Saturday, they went out and played tennis, and just before they began, the pastor said to Jim, you can almost see where the story's going, hey, how about if I beat you today, you come to church? And Jim said, that sounds great. <laughs> it just so happened that this pastor was number one in state as a high school tennis player, played Division I college tennis, and proceeded to not just beat Jim, but publicly humiliate him, hitting drop shots just over the net to bring Jim in close and then blasting the ball at his face. (laughs) Jim was so thoroughly bested that he respected the pastor enough to hold to the bargain and came to church the next day, and he was telling this story to us, the rest of us pastors. He said, the first time I went to church, I wasn't convinced, but I was intrigued enough to go back a second time, and then the second time I went, the pastor pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, everyone in this church really likes what I'm saying all the time and generally agrees with me and likes me, and that doesn't help me grow. So would you meet with me every Monday morning and push back and tell me about things that didn't make sense and the things that you don't agree with? And Jim agreed to do that. After about four weeks of those meetings, Jim kind of said, you dog, (laughs) not only did you trick me into coming to church, now you've got me sitting in the front row taking notes every Sunday so that I can best you in these conversations. It didn't take long, and Jim came to faith. That was 30-plus years ago. Or another pastor told a story of running from God, actually leaving his family of faith and rejecting the faith and going down to San Diego to live a life of his own making and pursue being a musician, working dead-end jobs. He was working at Target and was stocking shelves. One night at 3 a.m., he was in the deodorant aisle, putting deodorant on shelves at Target, and he was overwhelmed by the love of God for him and fell to his knees in the aisle in Target and came to faith. God is a strange and ridiculous God who redeems people's lives in strange and ridiculous ways. It does not matter who you are or what you've done or where you stand. God can meet us and arrest us and steal our hearts and render his verdict on our lives. Independent of any arguments on our part, independent of any convincing of him on our part, independent of any groveling, any attempts at self-reform. He just says, this one's mine. I'll be rescuing you today. I'll be declaring you are free forever. I'll be loving you. He 
He's strange enough to rule in favor of you. He's strange enough to rule in favor of me. He renders this verdict to the whole world. Only trust him. Many refuse to trust him despite his grace. Jesus closes this parable. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus wonders, will anyone believe in a God as strange as this? A God who meets broken people and proclaims his love for them? See, faith is letting go of all the arguments that we use to justify ourselves. Faith is abandoning all of the pretensions that we hold up, letting go of pretending that we are more than we are. In faith, we see our empty hands, we hear our empty words, we know that we bring nothing to the table, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of this strange and unrighteous judge. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, never grow weary of throwing yourself on the mercy of such a judge as this. This strange, unrighteous judge in our eyes is someone to be in relationship with. He's someone to know, someone to treasure, and his judgment of you is unwavering, heralded for all time by the Apostle Paul in that most famous refrain, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't talk yourself out of it. There is no condemnation for you in Christ. And he has offered himself freely to you. As the great reformer Martin Luther says it, You should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. Let's pray. Father, every one of us has objections in our hearts and in our minds to the sort of God you are and the sort of judging you do and the verdicts that you render. Uh, We've busied ourselves often filling our minds with stories of our own vindication, trying to figure out how it is that we can tell a story of our own uprightness or decency or prove our merit. We found ourselves in community with other people exaggerating what is good about us, hiding or diminishing what is evil about us. We are terrified of being found out, terrified of the true scales of justice. And yet, when you offer your grace so freely for some reason, we cling to those scales. 
pray that you'd send your spirit to open our hands and loose our jaws and insist on surrender in us so we would know your mercy and trust you. Amen.